0: Well, good morning. morning. We're going to open back up to Matthew chapter 19. Last week when we were talking through uh, chapter 19, we went through the first 12 verses. Um, And as we were kind of describing it, this whole chapter is focused around really, as I've thought about it more, it's two different forms of self-righteousness is really what it comes down to. You've got the legalistic side. And then you've got the kind of works-based side of it, okay? And you say, well, aren't those the same thing? Well, actually, they're not in some ways. Um, They actually come across and are delivered uh, in in different manners. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at the other kind of side of that self-righteous coin here this morning. So in the first 12 verses when we were talking about it, we were focusing more on the legalism side of it. We were focusing on the Pharisees who throughout scriptures embody the very definition of legalism, um, of a, de- a a a works based religious ideology that focuses all on how you will make yourself righteous. Okay, most of the time in the absence of God's intervention. Okay, um, the entire the entire Pharisaical kind of mindset. All right. Now there's there's plenty of them who through humble God-oriented submission submitted to the law. Okay, We're not classifying all Pharisees as bad people. We're not trying to paint with a broad brush. There was a lot of them, though, that came up to Jesus and let their true hearts be known over and over and over and over again. But their mindset was is that in my keeping of the law, I will declare myself righteous so that I could stand in front of God and say, yeah, but look what I did. Look at my righteous acts that I did. I kept your law. Now you owe me righteousness and you owe me glory and you owe me the kingdom and you owe me all these things. So there's that haughty, prideful, self-righteous aspect of it. Okay. The other side is what we're going to look at this morning, which comes from the, um, the next few verses. Now we do have in the middle of this, which is what I kind of mentioned last week when we got started in chapter 19, there is a section of this chapter that basically is the answer to both sides of the coin. Okay. It's kind of innocuous, though. It's small, and we kind of go, oh, it was just a cute little thing Jesus did. But in my opinion, as I've read this chapter, it's like, no, Jesus put that in the middle because he's going... Guys, you you see this, like, this is the answer, okay? On this side, you've got the Pharisees pronouncing their self-righteous legalism. On the other side, you've got the rich young ruler who's going to be seeking his own self-righteousness, but at a, in a different way, okay? Um, and, and And on both of these sides, you have error. In both of these sides, you have the wrong choice. In both of these sides, you do not have freedom in the grace of God. That's what I think when I was... Reflecting on it this morning even more, especially with the rich young ruler, what we see is a continuance of slavery, a continuance of bondage um, and a sorrowful situation. Okay, Um, and so we're going to kind of look at that. But in in the center portion of this, he gives us the answer. It's the same answer he gave, gave, gave us in chapter 18. This childlike mentality keeps coming back that God keeps pointing back going, this is your answer. This is your answer. This is your answer. Look at this. This is, this is it guys. Take a notice of this. See how this child behaves. This is what I've told you is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. And here we have, and again, between these two kind of, they're not opposites. They're just two different sides of the same coin, they're both focused on self-righteousness, though. So looking in verse 13 and through 15, verse 13 through 15, you have him address this about the children. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the children and the people bringing them. And, but Jesus said, suffer the little children or allow the little children and forbid them not to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now, again, you got, you know, three little verses there. Bada bing, bada boom, not a big deal. Don't let, don't kick the children out. You know, that's all Jesus was teaching here, right? It was just that he likes children. And we need to make sure that we're liking children too. Well, that's not, uh, in my opinion, why this is in here, okay? Um, Number one, there is like some historical teaching on this. Now, again, you won't necessarily find this, in the old testament scriptures but there was a tradition at least in it i guess you could say it was a rightly applied tradition i guess from the jewish law and the jewish um, Jewish teachings, but there was the custom—at least it's reported to us through commentaries and through history—that on the Day of Atonement, that big day that, that the Jews centered their life around, on the Day of Atonement, that children were brought to the elders of their communities, and the elder was supposed to lay his hands on the children to bless them as a as a continuing kind of thing. All right. So in this in this scene, you say, well, why were they bringing him to Jesus anyway? Well. You, you kind of pick on well, in this historical context that that's what was going on. Now, there's two reasons why the, the disciples, in this case, decided to run the children off. Number one, it's an elder, not a Messiah, okay? He's just an elder, he's just a rabbi, he's just a teacher. And so you get this mindset of maybe the disciples were kind of like pushing away from this going, oh, no, 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 no. He's not just some elder of this community, he's Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's to big for such trivial tasks. The other thing is really what I feel like is a majority of the point is that you, you view children as not deserving of such glorious things. Okay. They had this mindset again, as we were talking about from 18 chapter 18, the children were the lowest rung of the social order. Okay. They didn't have status. They didn't produce anything. In fact, they were 100% consumers, you know, I mean, man, they're just there. What do children really do? They don't add to society. In fact, in many cases, they detract from society. Okay? They smash mailboxes and stuff like that, those crazy kids, you know? That's, that's the kind of mindset. These kids aren't producing anything. Go off, run off, get out of here. Wait to gr- when you grow up and actually start contributing to society, then we will value your worth. I think it's funny, it comes right before he teaches a young man who was a rich, young ruler. You, contra- you, you contrast him beside this young, entrepreneurial, uh, very successful, very wealthy, you know, young man. And that's the guy. That one, If that one had come up to Jesus and said, lay your hands on Jesus, it would have been, oh, yes, yeah, sure. Come on, Jesus. Here's this rich young ruler. Put him up here. Lay your hands on him. He's got status. He's got claim. Run these vagabond children off. They're not deserving of such things. And Jesus says... You better let them in because I'm telling you, these are actually the ones who make up the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, there he's not saying it's only children that are in the kingdom of heaven. Everybody's got to regress back to an infancy so that they can get back in almost like Nicodemus was questioning Jesus on rebirth. How am I going to get back in the womb? That doesn't make sense. I'm a full grown man. It's not that kind of thing. He's going back and he's teaching them again about status. You're so worried about status. You're so worried. And this is a societal thing as in particular in this culture, in this time, in this place. And it still kind of is today. There's not a lot of stock or importance put on children. Sure, there's a lot of them, but it's not like they have a high priority, a high position which we typically do place on children in a Western society, okay? We view children a little bit different. We view rights to education. We view, you know, it's all about the children. It's all about the kids, you know. We got to raise the kids up. We got to train them in the schools. We got to get them successful, you know. We focus a lot on children in our society, okay? But in these cultures, that really was not the case, Okay? So they're almost, you you get this picture that Jesus is reorienting them again. And again, we're not going to go too deep into that because that's actually the answer to the other. You got to get both sides of it first. That's the answer. We got to get the other half of the coin. We haven't gotten there yet. So we're not going to dig too deep into that. But I did want you to kind of see where we were going with this with the children okay he's making a point it's the same point he made in chapter 18 it's the same point that he made back in matthew chapter 5 when he said blessed are the meek because theirs is the kingdom of heaven getting back to the idea of the humble the meek which he attributes to a childlike humility okay That's been the key. We've been looking at that all through chapter 18 when we spent, you know, four or five weeks going through chapter 18. How are you going to go to the next level? How are you going to enter into the kingdom of God? How are you going to be able to do any of the things that we classify as, quote unquote, Christian things, compassion, mercy, love? How are you going to be able to get there? Well, you have to get over yourself first. You can't get to it otherwise. Humbleness is required. So he says, so look at the child. The child's not The child's not not thinking of himself more highly than he should. The child's not coming to Jesus going, Jesus, look at what all I've done. Look at how much of the law I've kept. You owe your blessing to me. The child's like, I don't even know how to spell law. How do you even, I mean, what, you know. In fact, I just have this guy throwing me up to you. And I'm just kind of sitting there going, okay, who's this guy? And what's he going to do to me? Kind of a deal. Stranger danger. Who knows? But I mean, that's where... That's how the child comes into this situation. This child didn't walk up to Jesus and go, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't do that. The child's posture in this place is one of simple, kind of obedient humility. Okay? Now, again, I know that we've talked about the characteristics of children a lot, and we, in no way, classify children as humble, obedient Non self serving, I guess that would be self sacrificing. You know, in many ways, we can see children as being selfish brats. All right, you can say that that's that's what they that's that that's how they act a lot of times. But Jesus is giving the posture of the child, giving the place of the child in the hierarchy of society, humbleness, humility, view yourself as on the last rung of the ladder and be happy. Actually, seek that rung, quit trying to escalate yourself up higher than. You really ought to. So now he goes forward. And we got to see the other side of the coin so we can come back to that. So when you look in chapter 19, verse 16, he says, And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit or may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments." And he said unto him, Which? Which commandments? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man said unto him, Well, all these things I have kept from my youth up. What do I lack then? Jesus said to him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So in this first section of this story, when we look at what happens, everybody's familiar with the rich young ruler. Everybody's heard it. Nobody is. I mean, this is one of the other examples of a very well-known, well-taught um section of scripture this this story uh is found in all three of the synoptic gospels obviously it carried some amount of weight to be mentioned in all three of the gospels in almost the exact same format okay three different storytellers telling the exact same story almost in the exact same way, you come away with the idea that, okay, there's something in this that we need to grab. Now, again, you have probably heard like 50 bajillion sermons about the rich young ruler and what it's teaching and what it's not and how it happened, all these things. But as we have been trying so hard as we have gone through this for two years, we want to make sure we're taking it in the context of the chapter and everything else around it. And it does have so much more meaning, so much more clarity, at least in my opinion, when, you, when we're doing that. Okay? When you're taking it in here and you're just taking it out, yeah, you can grab that story and go, Oh yeah, look, see the deceitfulness of riches, see how it chokes out the word of God. I mean, we were talking about the parable of the sower and the seeds last week. And you have the, you have the lesson there of the one who, because of the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches, the word of God is choked out to where they become unfruitful. Okay. So we have this thing, you know, Okay, see, so riches equals bad. It will obstruct your view of the kingdom. And therefore, you know, a better view is to let go of the riches and to look only at Christ as your source of happiness. Yeah, you can we we can grab all that out. But again, I want us to connect it with what we're seeing in this chapter. Why is it there? And I know chapters were not added by Jesus. They were added by man. But when you look at these two together so closely, they're only separated by three verses. Okay. And in almost, I'm, I'm almost sure that in all three of the synoptic gospels, they come almost in the exact same chronological order as well. So you have this teaching of the rich young ruler. What do we have going on here? We have a young man who is wealthy. And as we were talking about with status, that instantaneously elevated him. Okay. That elevated him in this society. Why do you think there's so many teachings throughout the entire scriptures going all the way back to when Israel was just a roaming band in a wilderness? All the way to, uh, to uh, Philippians and Ephesians and James and all these other verses, um, all these other books that are past Christ in this, in this order. When you look at all that, why do you think there's so many places where God will say, do not prefer the rich man over the poor man? Why do you think that is? that's the tendency. That's what we bend to. We want to, as we have talked about, even going back a few chapters. You know, we talked about the influence, the draw, the 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 prestige of power and fame. Power and fame. We talked about it about the apostles because the apostles came back after doing miracles, and they're like, "Man, look at us! You know, look at what we can do. Look at these things." And Jesus is like, "You need to be careful." Satan did the same thing, and look what happened to him. You know, he kind of gives them a good little, you know, little smack across the head, reorienting them. That's the the draw, though, of our human nature is towards power and fame. Power and fame. The power that goes along with money, in this case, which also can give you a high amount of fame, okay? But in particular, the power with money. This rich, young ruler was a rich, young ruler. Ruler, because he was rich, okay. That's really where a lot of that comes from. You get to be the ruler because you're the richest, all right. The king isn't the king because he has a higher educational degree, the king is the king because he owns the land and he's the one that has lent it out to his vassals, all right. That's why he's in charge. The rich young ruler here was rich, all right. He had a lot of money, along with that money came a lot of power. A lot of prestige, a lot of fame, a lot of a lot of stuff that, man, that's a that's a sweet life. So he comes up to Jesus and says, yeah, but I want to know how I can have eternal life. Right. I want to know how do I inherit? How do I gain? How do I have eternal life? Right. Now, there's another section of scripture where. A, a another Jew approaches Jesus and asks the almost verbatim the exact same question, and it comes out of Luke chapter ten. In Luke chapter ten, verse twenty-five through thirty, behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Now, of course, it, it explains right away where his heart's at. I don't think, and I, and again, you're going to see these two positions, as I said, juxtaposed: the legalist mindset has a different heart going at these questions, okay? When the Pharisees were asking Jesus about, you know, in the previous section, when they were asking Jesus, it said they were asking him about divorce to do what? To tempt him. I want to catch him in a fault. I want to show how I know more than Jesus. I'm holier than Jesus. I'm righteous more, more righteous than Jesus because I've got the law figured out. Let's see how this man, this upstart, is going to butcher the law, I, keep, I know the law. Okay, The law is where I find my righteousness. The lawyers, the Pharisees, the self-righteous legalists are always going to come at it with that point of view. And in Luke chapter 10, the same thing. The lawyer stood up, tempting him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, that guy knew his answer. I know what I need to do. I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm not just a lawyer. I'm a self-righteous lawyer. Okay, I know what I need to do. I need to do the law. In fact, I'm going to give you the right answer, Jesus. Go ahead. Tell me. Tell me, Jesus, what do you think is the way that I can inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns around and says, well, what does the law say? How readest thou? And he answering, as any good self-righteous legalist would, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered right. This do and you shall live. Of course, then we know the rest of that story. He willing to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And of course, then following that is the teaching of the Good Samaritan. In the teaching of the Good Samaritan, Jesus basically turns that lawyer back on himself and said. You're one of the guys that walks past the poor person sitting in the ditch. All your self-righteous legalism going, oh, no, 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 no. I can't help that guy out. That would make me unclean. I keep the law. I am perfect in the law. I am perfectly holy and righteous. And I will do nothing, including loving my neighbor, if it will transgress what I perceive as my righteousness. He says, you've answered right, but you ain't doing it. I shouldn't say that because Asa's is now going to say that. You can't, you're, you're not doing it. You say that's what it is. You say that is the key to eternal life so you can inherit that. You just professed that was the way to do it, but you don't even do that. In fact, you make excuses for it. You'll come around and show how actually you're keeping the law better by not actually keeping the law. This goes back to the Pharisees when they argued... Oh, well, I would honor my father and mother, but you know that gift I'm supposed to give them to support them. I'm actually, oh, you know what? I gave it to the temple. Can you really argue with me with that, mom and dad? I gave it to the temple. It's a holy thing. I'm righteous. I'm holy. So he asked the same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's interesting that as Jesus is addressing these Jews who have grown up with the law, he points them back to the law in one part To find their answers, but more importantly, in both of these situations, he has pointed them back to the giver of the law. He's pointed them back to the giver of the law. You say, well, what do I mean by that? When you look in chapter 19 of Matthew, when the rich young ruler asks Jesus, he says, good master, Jesus turns around and says, why do you call me good? There's none good but one. All right? and, and and a lot of times we look at kind of the ground level of that and say, see, Jesus was acknowledging to this man that he was God. That's possibly That's probably in there, okay? More importantly, though, what he was pointing to the man was, do you understand that God is the only source of good? Or are you looking at the law to be the source of good? If you're looking at the law to be the source of good, in the absence of God, the law is not good. It's just a sheet of paper or... In this case, it's a rock. There's no good in it inherently. And it did not spring up of its own justified, righteous actions. It's just a rock. The reason the law has power and the reason the law has anything good in it is because that goodness originates from God, the only one who's good. So even with Christ, Christ can say yeah, he he can be reflectively kind of going, well, you know, if you're calling me good, maybe you're recognizing in me that I am good, i.e., I am God. But again, I come from God. I am God, I'm with God, I am one with the Trinity. That's where good this is we're the only place. We have the Walmart cornered market on goodness. All right. There is no other place you can get it from. Now I guess it's no longer I guess that's not the best example because now you've got like Costco and you've got Amazon. And so I guess there's a lot of other resources now. So maybe we'll have to think about that. Anyway, I, I, the, the, the cornered market, though, on goodness is God and God alone. The triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are the only source of goodness in this world. OK, they're the only place it can come from. They're the only place it can originate out of. Say why? Because everything else is broken and destroyed and worthless and it, it's absent of God's good. God's goodness. It can't originate out of its own. If there's any goodness within us, where do we say that comes from? From God. Why? Because in the absence of God, what are we? Wicked, vile, cruel? When we look at where goodness comes from, we can only find it in God. So that's what he's talking to this rich young ruler. He says, You call me a good master. You ask me how you have eternal life, and I'm pointing you back to where the source of goodness actually is. Is eternal life a good thing? Is it a good in that way? And I don't mean good just like a chocolate s'more kind of thing good. I mean like no true, pure goodness, righteousness, holiness, perfection, joy, joy. Peace, all of these things, where is that coming from, rich young ruler? And Jesus said, you know, there's only one source of that. That's God, right? What must I do, though, that I can have eternal life? That is where this man's and the rich, I mean, and the lawyer's questions point back to their mentality. Okay, okay. We talked about their heart. The lawyer comes at it with a heart that is not of God. He's tempting Jesus. He's purposefully trying to go to Jesus in that way. Pharisee, the same way in the last chapter, they're coming at Jesus. They're not asking humbly. They're not saying, look, I am seriously burdened with a weight of sin and I want freedom. Tell me how I can have eternal life. They're going, yeah, let's show this man, Jesus, exactly how ignorant he is. So the lawyers have that self-righteous, legalist side. The rich young ruler, I feel like, comes from a different point of view. The rich young ruler is coming with a heart that is seeking earnestly, okay, the answer to this question. He's not doing it so that he can claim a self-righteous status based on his legalism. He is seeking the answer to the question, honestly and humbly, in my opinion, okay, the problem is, though, he is still wrapped up in a theological concept that is erroneous. He is still wrapped up in a theological concept that is erroneous. What can I do to have eternal life? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Now, you get the idea, and you can see this even naturally today, when Rich people have a lot of money, man, most of the time. I'm not going to say all the time. Most of the time, they become pretty, you know, philanthropic, right? I mean, man, you got Bill and Melinda Gates. They throw a lot of money at stuff. You've got Jeff Bezos throwing a lot of money at stuff. You've got all these people throwing a lot of money at stuff. When you got a lot of money, I mean, what is it to give one, two, three, five million dollars to something? I mean, it's just... Chump change when you're making, you know, 1.2 billion and you're valued at that as a company. I mean, what really and some of them do it? Because, hey, if I dump a lot of this money off into this, I can get out of some taxes. It's great. They come I'm very philanthropic, though. Let's let's give let's do let's give this money out here. Let's let's throw it at this place. The rich young ruler very well is coming from this mindset. What can I do to inherit eternal life. I've got the possessions. I've got the wealth. I've got the means. I've got the ability. I love doing good for people. I'm obviously inserting that. I love doing good for people. So let's do some good. What other good things can I do? What other good things can I do? give me some more stuff to do. He's not coming at it from a legalist point of view going, "Oh, well, I have kept the law and here am I righteous and this is how I've done this." He's coming from the idea of my righteousness is based on how many good works I do. What can I do? What can I do? Do some more. Do some more. If I do enough good stuff in this world, I will outbalance the bad and I will inherit eternal life. It's not wrong. For him to be doing good. It's not erroneous. For him to desire to do good. It's not even erroneous. For him to come up to Jesus. And say what good thing can I do. Jesus said man I got all sorts of good stuff you can do. His problem is. And where his bondage lays. And his idea that his good things. Are eventually going to get him. Eternal life. That his good things are going to eventually. Get him eternal life. He's operating under the works-based idea that if I just do enough good in this world, I will get there. That is still an idea and prevalent today. That is still an idea and prevalent with us in here today. Okay? You say, oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, it is we still and and this is again you can what's funny is is that as you have watched and i have been watching really interest you know interestingly to me it's or it is interesting to me but um there is the uh the little series on nat geo um from morgan freeman and i think i really just watch it because it has morgan freeman in it and he's really cool you know Uh, i also that's why i like going to the birmingham airport because he talks to you the whole time if you didn't know that, that is Morgan Freeman talking, you know, in the interest of safety and your own personal safety. Make sure you keep all baggage, check, you know, all that stuff. That's Morgan Freeman, man. And when he tells you to watch your bags, you just want to do it, right? I mean, because it's Morgan Freeman. But he does this series on National Geographic Channel called The Story of God. Okay. Um, and he's in second season now. It covers a lot of stuff, a lot of interesting, some kind of weird stuff. But overall, it kind of has a very good little arc to it. All right. Well, what I found was interesting was whether you're in Hinduism, whether you are in Buddhism, whether you are in Islam, in some cases in Christianity and in Judaism, there is the idea that you have to do enough good to outbalance the bad. In Hinduism and Buddhism, unfortunately, the consequences are you just keep getting reborn into a lower level of life form until you get that figured out. Um, So if you live a really bad life, you might come back as a cockroach and then somehow figure out how to do enough good works to get out of the cockroach state. Um, That one is why I'm really glad I'm a Christian. Okay, Um, but that's where you have this rebirth idea. You're going to go through the cycle of rebirth over and over and over and over again until you get the good stuff figured out. And then your hope is that at one point you get it, you hit the mark, you'll get higher and higher in your level of status as you do more good in your life as a peasant. And the next time you'll come back into a higher caste, you'll make a little more money, you'll have a little more status. Do good that time, you'll come back as a higher caste and eventually you're going to you know, ping on up there until you hit Buddha stage, okay? Or in Hinduism, you'd hit one of the God stages and you kind of elevate and get out of that cycle. It's tied to works, though. You do enough good, outbalance the bad. Same thing with Islam. Even though there is this weird kind of predestinarian thing with Islam, there's also the idea that your good works line you up on a narrow path walking over a chasm. And if you get too far on the bad side, you'll fall off into hell. Okay, so there's another good works based thing. Now, like I said, there's this weird kind of everything is the will of God with with Islam. So it's like, yeah, you do good, but it could be. I mean, so ultimately, if you fall off into hell, God was doing it anyway. So I mean, there's a weird kind of deal with that with Islam, but they too fall back to if you do enough good, you get out. And I think we all are very well familiarized with the idea in Christianity that when you get to the gates and St. Peter is looking at the books, he's got to make sure you did enough good on one side versus the other to get you in, right? Over and over and over again, going all the way back to here, going all the way back to ancient times beyond that. Do enough good, you outweigh the bad, that's how you get to paradise. Do enough good, you outweigh the bad, that's how you get to paradise, Here, the rich young ruler, again, he is Jewish. He is coming with a mindset from the law. He's coming, I mean, and he's done good his life. He said, I have kept the law from my youth up. Some people throw shade at that and try to make it sound like he's bragging and he really couldn't have done that. I completely disagree. I think he's 100% honest. He kept these commandments from his youth up. He had kept the law. He had even at that point, he could have claimed or fallen off to the side of legalism. okay? where he could have said, look, Jesus, I have done the law thing. Now, where's my eternal life? I've done that. You owe it to me. I've kept that law perfectly. Now, this man's point of view, though, isn't that. His desire is there's gotta be some more. I gotta keep, there's gotta be some more good. There's gotta be one more good thing. He had still said he kept these from his youth up, but still didn't feel like he had eternal life. Do we catch that? Says, well, if you just what's what does the law say? Well, keep these commandments. Well, have you done it? Yeah, I've done it from my youth up. Well, then why are you asking me? You've got it, man. Way to go. Congratulations. The man still goes, No, there's there's something not here. There's something I don't feel. That. I don't seem to have grasped on to the freedom that I have eternal life. I don't feel that. That's why I'm asking you, Jesus. There must be one more good thing that I have to do because I'm just not getting it. I think it is interesting when you look at this man's posture, when you look at what he says he has done. The commandments that Jesus tells him, you know, he he says, all right, which commandments, which one should I do? And Jesus said, you should not do murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not all the Ten Commandments, right? He left out a couple. Also, he added one in that's not part of the Ten Commandments. That's not written on that tablet of stone, which is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That was not there that 's actually a that 's a deuteronomy okay that 's not in the first ten commandments that were given there that was something that was an additional teaching but Jesus listed it there as one of these these are the ones guys if you want to know i mean this is the million dollar answer to everyone in the room today you want to know how you get into heaven here it is right here do these commandments this is it man that 's easy isn 't it he 's almost feeding this rich young ruler. A bait of legalism. If you'd have given this to the Pharisees, they would have gone, oh, well, well, here I am. (laughs) Go ahead and take me in. I've been doing this plus 600 other ones. You know, that's how overly righteous I am, man. I don't just do these. Shoot, I had those under control when I was a kid. I've got to memorize backwards and forwards. I've been doing these. I've got this under control. In fact, I've got the two that you didn't list. I've got loving God as myself. I've got some others that you didn't say. I, I, I definitely deserve eternal life. So he's almost baiting this guy with legalism. The guy's like, yeah, well, but I've done that, Jesus. I've kept those from my youth up. So then Jesus takes it to the next level. I think it's interesting, though, that the ones he listed and the ones that, you know, you, you're picking up on this as well. Those are the most, I guess you should say, externally righteous. Okay. Loving your neighbor, that's an externally righteous act. It's visible, it's tangible. Honoring your father and mother, externally righteous. That's something I'm doing with other people. Therefore, it's not just this, you know, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You can get into some very internal things with that, obviously, okay? Even though we know that the love of God, the pursuit of the love of God, those are obviously going to reflect into external actions. I think that's why that was first. You know, you love God and God alone first. That's how you're able to do all these other ones, okay? You can't love your neighbor if you're not loving God. It's not like, oh, I love my neighbor. God, me and him have a bad relationship, but I'm loving my neighbor. I'm honoring my father. No, it it starts with number one for a reason, okay? But here he gives all the kind of externally righteous ones. There's a two-edged sword with that. Number one, the externally righteous ones, you... You truly have to have, if you're truly living these things out, and again, we we know that you can quote unquote do them without truly doing them because Jesus called the lawyer out on that. You say these two like love your neighbor is the two greatest commandments. But when I give you the picture of the Samaritan, you go, oh, well, I obviously wasn't loving my neighbor in that capacity. Now, you would have argued that you were. You would have argued that you were still righteous. You would have argued that that Samaritan or that that man in the ditch was a worthless person. If you touched him, you would have become unholy and all these things. And you would have come up with every legalist reason why you still satisfied the law. But ultimately, you did not do that second of the greatest commandments. Here, though, you have the idea that these kind of things, like we said, these, these actions Require, if you're truly doing them for the purposes of God, they require a heart that has been changed by God. Okay? Again, like we said, you cannot truly love your neighbor and have a heart to be compassionate and merciful to your neighbor if your heart is still a wicked, hard heart that's completely absorbed with yourself. Okay? It's just impossible. you can do it through a routine, you can do it through a ritual, you can do it through a religious adventure. You cannot truly embody that commandment unless your heart has been given over to God. God has changed your heart in the manner to give you compassion, to give you mercy, to give you long-suffering in those ways. So first, those external actions are either testifying okay, to works that have already been done within your heart in that way, but they, they are external. There are things, they are the outflowing of what God has worked in you. When we talk about for us to love our neighbor, to love God, to love our enemies and those kind of things, what we are saying is that take what Christ has put in your heart to do, to live out like he has lived out. You are to do that, okay? And why are we to do that? Why can we even consider doing that? Because Christ has put that in your heart to do. I can't forgive my brother like he taught in 18. I can't forgive my brother if my heart has not been changed. I can't do that in that way. I have no desire for that. I fall back to my fleshly desire, which was, man, forget you. If you don't lie, we'll just kick you, be gone. I don't want to be around you. You know, I love the memes and things like that that pop up on Facebook to say things like, you know, you deserve to not be around people who are negative or whatever, have any kind of bad things to say about you. I'm like... <laughs> Look, let me just tell you, there's a lot of things we deserve, all right? That ain't one of them. I've done it twice now. Maybe that's where Asa gets it from. But these things, these external commandments, they have to have a heart that has been changed, a heart that is truly for God, that is holy and compassionate. That's, that's number one. These external things done in the appropriate way do show forth the works that have been done in our heart. But secondly, and more to the point maybe with the rich young ruler, but most definitely with a lot of people, is, is these are the most visible. These actions are the most visible. These actions are the ones that if you want people to recognize you as a righteous person, well, these are the ones that you do. Okay? Again, loving God with all my heart, mind, and soul. How, am I, how do I quantify that? How do I put that on a resume? How do I walk down the street and you go, man, that guy's killing the first commandment. I mean, just killing it. Look at him go. You can't as well. It's not a, it's not a very tangible commandment in that way but loving your father and mother yeah man I can walk up there and be like oh did you see what Adam did for his parents did you see how he honored them did you see how he gave for them did you see how he loved his neighbor did you see what he gave to them did you see how he blessed them did you see how he loved his enemy did you see all these things that have look at how much Adam has done look at all the good things Adam has done Now, again, the rich young ruler might not have been coming from that point of view of I'm doing this because I want people to talk about me. But he definitely was coming from the mindset that in doing this, I am achieving something with God. Okay. now there needs to be clarification on that. Okay. we are commanded to do these things by God. All right. They are not optional. They are not do these things. And I will give you your Joel Osteen better life now. That is not what this is about. He says, You do them. In fact, in Ephesians, he says, You do them because I have born you again to do these things. I made you who you are for this purpose to do these things, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to do good works. I made you for that. So these are not optional things. These are not things that we look at and say, Well, you know, if you want your best life, if you want to be more fulfilled in your Christian walk, if you want to be all these things, well, these are some good things to do. No, God says these are like the things to do. If you want to call yourself a Christian, these are the things to do. If you're not doing these things, we got a question mark. Okay? So he's not giving you the idea of this is an optional thing. And these things are not bad. This is not all, well, if I do that, all I'm being a self-righteous. No, we're commanded to do these things. But there is the side from the rich young ruler's point of view that these things are obtaining either righteousness or favor, or something in the mind of God for us. That my good works are obtaining favor, righteousness, or something in the mind of God for us. That's what's the problem here. That's what's really getting at the crux of the issue here. And as I said, these are still things that we do today in this room. And you say, oh, I know that it's, you know, I've read Ephesians. I can quote it to you. I can argue, you know, soteriology about grace and all this stuff. And I can tell you all that. I know that I don't think that I'm working myself into heaven. We still, though, go from a mindset almost daily. That if I do enough good stuff today, whatever that may be, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's reading my Bible, maybe it's alone time, maybe it's a devotional, maybe it's flipping a 50 in a poor man's cup, whatever it may be, that somehow that is buying me favor with God. He's going to pay it back to me someday. I'm not going to have as bad of a day today. Tomorrow is going to be even better. Why? Well, because I went to church twice on Sunday, because I went to church on Wednesday night, because I've been praying three times a day, because I fasted during Lent, because I read the Bible in a year, because I did all these things. These are going to earn me some favors with God. We still do this. What Christ was trying to express to the rich young ruler, I think is summed up in his last statement to him. Just come and follow me. I don't need all this junk. Your good works. There's not another good work to do. Your riches. Go sell them all. Get rid of it. You don't need any of that. I don't want any of that. Do you think your riches are somehow going to buy you in with me? It's not. Do you think that your good works are somehow going to earn you favor with me? It's not. I'm already here. Your favor is based on me with God, not on what you do or your riches. When we look over in Ephesians chapter 1, okay, if we turn over there real quick to read that. The inheritance issue is already addressed. When we look in Ephesians chapter 1, of course, we don't have time to read through it all, but... In the beloved, how, when, where and why and who achieved our acceptance in the beloved. It was Jesus Christ. Okay. so to the rich young rulers answer, what good things must I do that I can have eternal life that I can inherit eternal life? He says, you don't have a good work you could ever do. And you're in bondage thinking that your good works are ever going to achieve that. Instead, you rest in what I have already given you, what I have already gained for you, the acceptance I have already provided to you. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mysteries of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself." That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And this is the verse. These are the verses we wanted to get to. "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That inheritance factor that you're trying to get at, rich young ruler, is tied up in Christ and in Christ alone. Not your good works. But the problem is, the problem is, and what we see with the rich young ruler and what he tells us there, the problem is this we still operate on that mindset that my favor with God is directly tied with my good works. No matter what it may be, my favor with God is directly tied to my good works. When I forget to pray tomorrow, all of a sudden I'm on God's bad list. I need to wait for it. I need to wait for the punishment because I forgot to pray. Now I'm operating under this mindset the whole day that God is this fickle, wrathful, Islamic or Hindu or Buddhist God that if I don't do enough good things here, I come back as a cockroach. But that's not what Christ is telling us, is it? He's saying, don't don't view your good works in that way, man. They're not going to gain you eternal life. When you were talking about your inheritance, it's bound up in the good works of Jesus Christ. I heard a brother preaching this morning, and I mean, this is just the most fantastic uh, definition I think I've heard. And he described it in this way. We talk about grace and we call it the unmerited favor of God. You know, and he described it in this way. He says, that's the back pocket definition of grace. It's the back pocket definition of grace. It is 100% accurate. It is the very good, high, and fancy, that's what it is, unmerited favor of God. That is what grace means. That's the back pocket. He says the front pocket one that's even more accessible and easier for you to grab hold to because it's in your front pocket, not your back pocket, is it could have gone another way. It could have gone another way. In fact, it should have gone another way. And that's the case with us. It should have gone another way. We should be in hell. We should be out of God's favor. We should be punished for all the sins that we committed. But by the grace of God, it went another way. By the grace of God, we were saved. By the grace of God, we were delivered. By the grace of God, we have been given an inheritance that didn't go off of our works. Because in all honesty, let's talk about it. Our works were not that good. So when you circle back around to that, when you circle back around to that with the rich young ruler, where is my inheritance? How am I getting it? What am I going to do? Where are my good works? This man, as he looked, you know, he said, Jesus said, hey, here you go. You want to know how to do it? There's one thing you lack. Okay, yeah, you're getting all those commandments. But here you go for the legalist, for the one who's looking for the works. I've got one for you to do. And if you do this, you'll obtain eternal life, which means that for all of us, if we want eternal life. All we have to do is keep those commandments that he told us and sell of our goods and that's it, right? That's the solution. That's what he said about prayer too, right? We talked about this when he was talking about prayer. If you just pray in faith, you'll have anything you want, right? That's what Jesus said. That's the answer to the problem. We all want to know how anybody can walk up and get a prayer answered or get eternal life and Jesus just gave us the seven step process. Well, I mean that's pretty easy. I don't know why this is such a struggle for people. That's a simple solution. Why did Jesus answer him the way that he did? We know again from the from the root level on this text, we always look back at the man's obstructionism okay with his riches all right what was blocking him from truly following after christ well it was his riches and his status and his fame and all those things And we talk about that that's one of our number one things in fact jesus goes on to talk about that and says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and of course then they have the dialogue that we'll get into next time but here He gives them the answer. You need to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. This man then did not want to do that. In fact, he left sorrowful for he had great possessions. What gets me about this, that again, I don't. I probably have thought about it in this way, but I think because I take this text and have taken this text just out so many times and preached it from the point of view of the, how riches will block your view of Christ, how riches can interfere with your view of, or your entering into the kingdom, because if you're so worried about fame and power and glory and honor, well, then you're not worried about the things of Christ and you're not, you know, we, we kind of go through that. We've been through that multiple, multiple times. What I don't catch is this man, okay, was not sorrowful because he was about to give up his riches. This man was sorrowful because he was given an answer to the question he asked and he was not willing to do it. In his mind, he has just walked away from eternal life. That was his question. What can I do to have eternal life? Life, And Jesus told him, do this. And the man said, I'm not willing. And he walked away. And he was sorrowful when he walked away. Why? Because he had just walked away from eternal life. He had just said, you know what? My riches and my power are more important to me than eternal life. Man, if it only Jesus, if you could have just given me one more commandment, anything, Jesus, but giving up my riches, I would do it all. If you said I had to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem with a cross on my back, if you had said that I could, I mean, anything, Jesus, but don't take my riches from me. That's my identity. That's my power. That's my fame. That's everything to me. Don't take that from me. Don't make me do that. That one's just a little bit too hard to bear for me. So he went away sorrowful, sorrowful because he thought he he just lost eternal life, his entrance into it, his way to it, his path to it, his good work to it. The one thing that he had left to do to be able to say, man, I've got it. And he walked away from it. So, yeah, he was sorrowful. Sorrowful over the fact that he thought that now he's, well, now I'm going to hell. I don't have the, I I missed out on my chance. What it is describing to us again, and what we have been, we've been trying to get across is that kind of mindset is still a bondage mindset. The man's sorrowful because he didn't get the satisfaction that he was looking for. He says, I've kept all these laws. I've done all these good works. I've done all these things and I still feel like I don't have it. I'm still in bondage. I'm still... I'm still, I feel as if I'm not free. I feel like my term, my end point is questionable. I don't have any assurance. I don't have any kind of comfort. I don't have any kind of peace. I feel like I am still lost. Because I just can't do that one thing you would have me do. Now, what this should mean to us in closing. Okay. Because again, I don't. I don't necessarily feel like any of us are in a place. Maybe we are. Maybe I just don't know it. I don't feel like any of us are in a place where we're sitting there going, you know what, Jesus, I would do this, but I just can't. Okay. I would lay it all down for you, but I just, I just can't. I'm just not going, I don't feel like any of us necessarily are in that place this morning. I don't, you know, feel like a majority of us would be here if that was the case. Okay. But if you ever want to know, okay, you ever want to know where our freedom comes from, where our freedom in our walk with Christ comes from, where the freedom of our minds and our hearts comes from. Again, like with this guy, he walked away. You pull him two years down the road. If this is the same path he is on, you would still find him in that same position, Feeling that he is lost, feeling that he is—in his case, in his mindset and what he's looking at—he is not saved. If you want to use that language, that's what the you know the disciples, the apostles, use in just a little bit. Using that kind of language, he's walking around with that. I mean, you could you could argue the case, man. Your heart is after God. You have all these things that you change, you know, all this stuff, but you still feel like you were lost. You're still viewing yourself through the lens that you're going to have to keep doing good works, or that you have not done enough good works. To save yourself. You're just not good enough. You haven't earned enough favor with God. You haven't done enough good things to get you enough points in heaven to be able to win the prize for yourself. That is a sad, depressive, lost state. And what Christ was trying to free that man from... Was that state what Christ did here was preach the gospel to him. He simply preached the gospel to him. The gospel is lay down everything that you have. Lay down all of your status. Lay down all of your fame. Lay down all of your legalism. Lay down all of your self-righteousness. Lay down all of those things. Repent of those things. And simply submit in humble obedience to me. Lay it all down and come follow me. Lay all the self-righteousness down and come follow me. You know, what's crazy is when you're following me, we're going to do a lot of those things you talked about. We're going to love on our neighbor and we're going to love on our enemies and we're going to do all these good works and we are going to do a lot of good works together. But the first step is lay all that other mess down. Whether it's the riches, whether it's the fame, whether it's the power, or maybe it's not even those things. I mean, none of us, I think, in here are fabulously wealthy, sitting in mansions going, but look at all my riches that I have. I can't let go of them. But we are sitting there going, yeah, but look at all the freedom I have. Look at all the stuff I have. Look at all the clout I have. Look at my status. Look at my friend groups. Look at my Instagram account. Look at all this stuff I have. look at myself righteousness i've done a lot of good stuff i've never been bad i've never done wrong i've never done i've never said this i've never watched that movie i never did all that stuff i've always been good i've always come to church i've always kept up the tradition i've done all those things that is who i am how can i lay that down but christ is simply preaching the gospel to him you have to lay it all down Unless you humble yourself as a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you put aside your own self-worth, your own pride, your own self-righteousness, your thought that you're going to be able to do all this on your own. Unless you truly see your need of me and come follow me, you're going to still be like this sorrowful, rich young ruler. That is the gospel. That's what he's preaching to him. Lay it all down, man. Just follow me. Notice how simple that is. There's no good works involved with that. The only thing you're doing is letting go of all this other worldly trappings that are keeping your hand. You're just following me. I'm not making you give or do or sacrifice. I'm just make just come and follow me. This is why we preach to everyone. This is why we evangelize around the world. This is why we do what we do. It's because we want whoever it is, whether they are Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, or Christian in many cases, we want you to be freed in your mind by what God has already done for you by His grace. And His call is this, lay it down and follow me. Lay it down and follow me. You know, we've used the example before, talking about... The idea of salvation and grace and but the application of obedience and hearing the gospel and things here in this world, you know, when when you and this is the example we've used. You're a millionaire. okay? you know how you're a millionaire because you've got a million dollars in your bank account. Here's the problem, though. You didn't know it was there. No one ever told you it was deposited. You never checked it on paper. You're the most wealthiest man woman in Jasper, Alabama. You're still living in a cardboard box, starving to death. You say, well, but you got all this. You've already got all this. You've got all these resources. You've got all this stuff. You've already had this inheritance. It's already been given to you. You're wealthier than anybody else in Jasper. But you don't know about it. So in your mind, what are you? I'm poor. I'm starving. I'm destitute. Not knowing that you're rich, you're blessed, and you have anything you could ever want. The mindset of why we pursue other people and why we preach the gospel, not just to a bunch of people who believe it, but to everybody is because we want everybody to know wherever they may be around the world, wherever God's people may be in this entire all four corners of the earth. We want them to be freed from that sorrow. We want them to be freed from that sorrow. State of thinking they're lost when they don't recognize they have a Father who has loved them, cared for them, and died for them. That's why we do these things. So what good works can we do? Well, we still have a lot of good works to do. What good works should we do? Everything that has been talked about before. What are our good works going to do for us? You don't have to rest in any idea that your good works are going to gain you more favor. You already have infinite favor with God. Get out of your sorrowful situation thinking that you haven't done good enough today and that somehow you're going to fall off that chasm into hell. Get off that idea that you're going to fall off into God's bad graces and you're going to come back as a cockroach. Get off the whatever the thought is that is keeping you depressed saying, well, I'm just not good enough. Look, I don't pray enough. Look, I haven't prayed hard enough. Look at this person. They pray better than me. Look at how this person has done better than me, has worked harder than me, has done more for the kingdom than me. Look at this person going over to Africa. I've never been over there. Look, I just must be a failure as a Christian. Stop and breathe and realize that your favor with God is not based on those things. You have infinite Wealth and value in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for you. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to sit back and go, oh, well, see, here's my favor. I've already got it. I don't need to do anything. So he said, no, because of that, get off your backsides and follow me. Do the good works. Do what I have commanded you to do. So may God bless us to work on this as we go forward.